Well, welcome. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Peter's Fireside. And wherever you are today, we're really glad you're joining us. Before we dig into the sermon, let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that we can be gathered uh, around the world, throughout the city, in our homes, or wherever we may be, uh, gathered under your story, under the power of your word, united by your spirit. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet, that we'd not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I find it significant that Luke's gospel begins with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, a barren childless woman who would have been stigmatized for that very reason. Because in the ancient world, if you were barren, if you didn't have children, common perception was that you were overlooked by God. You may even be cursed by God. But the gospel of Luke starts there. The gospel is good news for the barren for the stigmatized, for the seemingly overlooked. Today, I want to try to stir our imagination and our vision of hope. And if you're just exploring faith, I also hope that today you'll see that if you choose to follow Jesus, if you join us on this journey toward his kingdom, it doesn't smooth everything out. Jesus doesn't guarantee an easy life, although he guarantees a better life. Even so, I want to invite you into the audacity of hope that faith brings about. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, and everything will be on the screen as well. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. We get a snapshot of Elizabeth here. We are told that Elizabeth is a daughter of Aaron. If you trace my lineage, uh, I'm actually related to uh, an author from way back in English history, Lawrence Stern. Now, this is of no importance to you, but it's very exciting if you're into English literature because old Larry actually wrote the first crude humor book in English history. Now, we might not think it's all that interesting that Elizabeth is a daughter of Aaron, but in ancient Israel, this was actually a huge deal. Aaron was the brother of Moses, and Aaron was the very first high priest of Israel. This is a huge family history. And on top of that, Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, has pretty impressive, impressive uh, credentials himself. He's of the division of Abijah, another priestly order. And so between the two of them, they come from the most priestly background you can imagine. So the two of them come from a long history of representing God to the people and the people to God. 
And in ancient Israel, this was serious social rank. But on top of that, Luke tells us that Elizabeth and Zechariah were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this isn't perfection. They weren't sinless people. They were Torah observant. And to the best of their abilities, they uh, were walking in God's ways. So this isn't about perfection as much as it is about a direction of their life. So from the outside looking in, Elizabeth and Zechariah were a power couple. You know, good backgrounds, an important role within society, good and righteous people who pursued God together. But in the ancient world, from the outside looking in, something was missing. If we read in verse 5, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Now, it doesn't matter what century or what culture you're in to be barren, to not be able to have a child when you want to have a child. It's heartbreaking. But in the ancient world, there was a spiritual component, as I already said. People thought you were either overlooked by God, an outcast, or cursed by God. And so there was a stigma around barrenness. However, it's not unusual for faithful couples in Scripture to struggle in this area. Sarah and Abraham, or Hannah and Elkanah, you know, God reversed their barrenness. God brought their children into the world and did incredible things through Isaac and Samuel respectively. And so when we look to the scriptures, barrenness can breed a sort of expectation. And Elizabeth and Zechariah, they knew these stories. They were righteous people. I'm sure they would have looked to the scriptures for comfort and encouragement or an attempt to make sense of what was going on in their lives. And I'm sure they would have prayed and prayed and prayed with expectation and hope that God might show up in their lives the same way they've seen him show up in the lives of the saints recorded in their scriptures. And yet, year after year after year turned into decade after decade And now they're advanced in years. And it must have felt like their window of opportunity was closing or firmly shut. Last week, we explored how the barrenness of Elizabeth also represents the barrenness of the nation. That the people of God were experiencing a sort of spiritual barrenness. That all of creation is experiencing a spiritual barrenness. And that this is really about that. And that's why so much of our passage focuses on the temple and focuses on Zechariah. But by accident, we sometimes overlook Elizabeth's experience. And that's what I want to focus on for a bit. And I want to pause here because just mentioning infertility is painful for couples in our community. And I want to spend some time speaking to those who might find themselves in Elizabeth's position, but they haven't been healed, and the story hasn't resolved, and there doesn't appear to be a good ending like there is in our passage. And perhaps you're heartbroken with infertility, or maybe you have an ongoing chronic health issue that's impacting the quality of your life. Maybe you're tired from walking day after day through a mental illness or you're overcome with grief because 
of a personal tragedy. When we read the scriptures, we're inclined, and we naturally do this, to try to find people who look like us so we can find our own place in this story. And so often, especially in the Gospels, in passages like this, it seems that the stories are about people who are ill and get made whole, who are healed from what is afflicting them. And when you're not getting healed, these kind of stories, they're complicated, aren't they? Because this is a tender area for you. And obviously that is a massive understatement. When you need to be healed, and despite your prayers and faith and wrestling, you go unhealed, passages like this are really, really hard. The stories of miracles, if you're longing for healing, are really double-sided. You know, they can sometimes be a source of great hope and encouragement, and other times they can be a scourge and exacerbate your hurt. Elizabeth's healing has a good ending, and that may not be your story, and that's a hard place to be. And of course, you ask, why, why hasn't God healed me? Let me at least say this to you. It is not because you lack faith. And let me add this as well. It's egregious when people say you just need more faith. It's wrong when people overlook how present your faith is and how painful it has been for you to hold on to hope. And it's wrong when people suggest that it's just a matter of believing more or praying harder or in the right way or trusting stronger or reading the next book or trying the next remedy or whatever. You know, rarely in the Gospels does a healing not take place because of a lack of faith. I can think of two examples immediately. You know, Jesus goes to his hometown and there he could perform only a few miracles because of the lack of faith of the whole town, not an individual. Or a time when Jesus rebukes his disciples because they can't cast out a demon and he, he bemoans their faith, but it's because they forgot to pray. You know, when a lack of faith is acknowledged in these cases, I don't think it's a diagnostic tool for us to use. I don't think we're meant to take those passages and evaluate a person's life and conclude, see, you just need more faith, then you would be healed. If you knew how much faith it takes for a person going through chronic illness or something that's not being healed to refrain from smacking you upside the head when you say something as trite as that, you would fall to your knees in awe. You would. It takes faith to endure in prayer and in faith and the journey towards Christ when the healing isn't coming and you're trying and you're asking and you're pleading and you're being faithful. So if you're a friend or a family member, or even acquaintance of someone going through that, I want to say it's easy to give a scripture verse. It's easy to offer up some words. It's a lot harder to sit someone in the long silence of not knowing what to do. The empty space of our powerlessness. Of course, there are times to share a verse, to encourage, to comfort. 
But don't start there. Don't rush there even. Don't rush to comfort or to solve or to offer words of hope before you've sat with someone in their pain. Because it's unlikely you will ever fully understand their pain. Even if you've been through something similar, it's still their pain. Friends, well-meaning words of encouragement and comfort can actually leave people feeling more misunderstood and alone. And so often we speak due to our own discomfort instead of staying with the person in their discomfort. And it's hard because all we can do is enter into that space and share in that powerlessness, the frustration of it, the hurt of it, the confusion of it, the ache that comes from a desire for God to act and the disappointment that God isn't answering prayers the way we would want him to answer them and the confusion about why he's not answering it. And all we can do is enter into that powerless place and hold on together for dear life. But back to the question, why hasn't God healed you? You have faith, you've endured, you've prayed, you've persevered, you've struggled, you've hurt, you've grieved, and you're holding on, or at least you're trying to hold on, but your grip is getting weak and you're feeling tired. Why hasn't God healed you? Why hasn't God seemed to hear you? Why has God failed to act? I don't know. And what are you supposed to do when the word of God isn't comforting to you? What are you supposed to do when passages like this hurt more than they help? Turn to the next page or put the book down altogether. Name what you're feeling. Sit with it. Cry over it. Share your experience with those you trust. You see, there's a time to read scripture. There's a time to pray. And then there's a time to name that these things that are supposed to help us aren't actually helping us right now. And there's a time to name that pain and sit with that pain and share that pain with others. I don't have the answers for your pain. I don't know why God isn't answering your prayers. But your experience matters here. And it's welcome here. And I want you to know that you don't have to carry it alone. I want to keep that experience in mind as we engage this passage, as we look at it a bit more closely. Luke tells us, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And this is true of both of them. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah each respond in different ways, you know, to the healing. Let's talk about Zechariah's response first. You know, we looked at Zechariah's doubt last week. The angel Gabriel stands before him and says, you're going to have a child. And old Zach's response is, how can I know this? And as a consequence, his doubt is turned into mutinous. And, and it's, not, it's not punishment. It's a part of his own formation. And I won't cover that ground again because we looked at it last week, but here's what I want to suggest. 
The barrenness of Elizabeth's womb had spread to Zachariah's heart. The barrenness of Elizabeth's womb had spread to Zachariah's heart. How does that happen? When I was growing up, uh, one of my chores was to rake leaves. And I didn't mind at first. I actually took a strange comfort and delight in raking the leaves. But over the years, it became the worst thing of ever. And I don't know why, but my parents just refused to buy new rakes. And so I had this shoddy old rake, and I may have well been using a broom. So I remember clearly one year I was outside brooming the leaves, and I was in the front yard, and it was getting dark, and it was bitter cold, and it was barren out, and I could see my parents inside through the front window. And the lights were on, and it looked warm and cozy, and they were curled up on the couch, and they had blankets, and they were watching TV and sipping hot chocolates. And I thought, do they see me? I doubt in that moment that they understood my hands were numb. I couldn't feel them. I doubt they knew the frustration of brooming leaves. I was longing for warmth. Where was my due? And I doubted that they appreciated my hard work. You know, why didn't they come outside and at least give me a hot chocolate for my hard work? I thought, do they even care? Did they just procreate so that they could have a human to broom their leaves? You see, I was being faithful in my task. But resentment was welling up in my heart. But I kept raking anyways. Eventually, my parents did come outside and invited me in because it was getting very late. And I refused to go in. I didn't want to go in. I chose to stay outside in the barren cold, even though it started raining outside in my pile of leaves, bitter, angry, and cold. I chose bitterness in that moment. I chose barrenness in that moment because my trust had momentarily eroded in my parents. The barrenness of Elizabeth's womb had spread to Zechariah's heart. And I think all of us, to some degree, can relate to Zechariah. Zechariah hadn't stopped following God. Not in his own life, not in his vocation. He kept serving in the temple. He kept raking the leaves, so to speak. But his heart was broken, and it could only break so many times before becoming barren. A barren heart can still be righteous. This is true. A barren heart can still seek to honor God, and sincerely so, but barrenness chokes out hope. And over time, it erodes trust. And even though you're sincerely following God, eventually you just start to go through the motions. You might do all the things you ought to do, but your heart's become barren because there's been years of unanswered prayer and struggle. Does God see me? Is he even there? Is he even good? Or maybe you look at all that you've done for God and life isn't going the way you thought it would go and you think, where is my reward? Why doesn't God seem to at least acknowledge all that I'm doing for him? You look at all that you've done for God and all the things that are going on in your life and you think, where is God? I'm, I'm being faithful. Why doesn't he at least throw me a bone? Where is my reward? And it, it keeps you from trusting him. And some of you, you won't even consider crossing into this world of faith because if there is a God, 
it just makes you more angry because if there is a God, how could he let that person hurt you the way they did? If there is a God, how come he lets little children die? Does he really care? How could he? How could he? Stops you from trusting him. So here's what I find incredible about Elizabeth. Barrenness did not spread to her heart. Barrenness did not spread to her heart. Elizabeth gets the final say in our passage. Look at verse uh, 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. If I was Elizabeth and I was pregnant, I would be throwing that baby bump up in people's faces. Check it out. I'm pregnant. But not so with Elizabeth. Elizabeth kept that baby bump concealed. Do you know what kind of righteousness that takes? Do you know what kind of restraint it would take not to flaunt this over others and to shame them the way they shamed you, to publicly rejoice that you're not stigmatized. God hasn't overlooked you. God hasn't cursed you. But Elizabeth keeps it to herself. And Elizabeth also responds differently than Zechariah. The barrenness of her womb hasn't spread to her heart. And here's what I suspect about her. Even if Elizabeth had remained barren and never had a child. Even if the miracle never came, she would have held on tight to God anyway. Because she wasn't righteous in order to strong arm God into healing her. Her trust in God wasn't dependent on the health of her body. She trusted that God is faithful and that nothing, not the barrenness of the womb, not the barrenness of a heart, can get in the way of God's promise. I suspect she clung to who she knew God to be in the scriptures. She clung on to how God had shown up time and time again throughout Israel's history. She clung to the hope that God is faithful and his kingdom will come, if not now, later. If not later, then in the life to come in his kingdom. Despite her age, despite her barrenness, despite years of unanswered prayer, she remained open to God. And undoubtedly, there was pain and, and grief and hurt and disappointment. There was a lifetime of it. But on the journey, she continued to cultivate her trust and hope in God in her heart. And she never said, God, your time is up. You've had a long enough window. I'm done with you. Now, please hear me. If your heart is barren because of the pain you've been suffering, here's what I don't want. I don't want you to feel shamed or guilty right now. You're suffering. And prolonged suffering causes calluses. And I want you to know there's permission to name that. There's permission to name if barrenness is starting to seep into your heart. There's permission to name if your heart is already long and gone and, and barren. So I want to ask, why did God heal Elizabeth? There's no answer. 
when Elizabeth was healed and became pregnant, she simply says, God has done this for me. But note what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, God did this for me because I'm righteous. Or God did this for me because I prayed long enough and in the right way suddenly. Or God did this for me because he was testing me and I passed the test. Frankly, that's not how God works at all. Elizabeth just says, God has done this for me. She has a grace-filled worldview. God healed Elizabeth out of an abundance of his grace, not because of her righteousness, but because of his goodness and kindness. But it's a mystery why he chose her and not others. It's a mystery why he's not yet healed you. God chose Elizabeth and it's beautiful and harrowing all at once. But here's the tension I think we need to hold on to. God does heal. Sometimes he heals and sometimes he doesn't. And we cannot force his hand, but we can ask, we can pray and we can expect him to heal he doesn't always heal, even though sometimes he does. And in this case in Luke, he heals Elizabeth. And it's a profound gift to her and Zechariah. But it's not really about Elizabeth and Zechariah as important as they are to God. This is about God fulfilling his promise. This is about the birth of John the Baptist, who's going to pave the way and prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. Now, this miracle is about God enacting his great plan of redemption for the world to restore and heal all things. This miracle is really about getting the world ready for the everlasting king to come and establish his everlasting kingdom. And our hope, is that when Jesus finally establishes his kingdom in its fullness, we will witness the death of death. Tears will be wiped away and suffering will be no more. Elizabeth's miracle then can be a picture for us. We will be made whole. If not now, then later. If not later, then when Jesus' kingdom comes. And because Jesus arrived on the scene, we have this hope that his kingdom is on its way and there is a place for us in his kingdom should we follow him. Now, I understand this doesn't immediately fix everything. And you might be thinking, what's the point? What do I gain from hope if I'm left in my pain? And I, I can understand that. One holiday, my family... Uh, got together and we partook in an ancient tradition of my clan playing board games. And this year we played Quelf, which is just a crazy game. And most of my family, they're not religious, they're not spiritual. And since I became a pastor, they love to drop difficult questions on my lap when I'm least expecting it. So here we are playing a board game called Quelf that is just insane. And my uncle said to me, I have friends. And he paused for a long time. And their two-year-old daughter died. Why would God allow this? 
I tried my best to answer. I was a very little help. And my uncle, he's a pretty, pretty even-keeled person, but as we talked about it, he started to get more lively and angry, and, and not angry at me, but angry toward this idea of God. And he said, if there's a God, this is utterly wrong. How could God let this happen? And so I asked my uncle, well, what do you think happened to this two-year-old girl? And he said, she's gone. She's dust. And almost immediately, his anger subsided and he became dispassionate. She's dust. It's over. I said, do you see? If there's a God, something egregious took place. Something wrong happened and your anger is right and justified and you should hold on to that anger and you should not quench that anger and it's okay even if that anger is directed toward God because something happened that should never have happened. But if there is no God, so what? This is just the way the world is and all that anger disappeared. She's just dust. God makes her death feel like a great injustice, but his absence reduces her life to dust. If there's a God, our pain and our suffering is fundamentally disordered and wrong and not the way things were meant to be. Without God, this is just the way things are. And only with God can we share in the hope that somehow he's going to make this right. The Apostle Paul knew hardship. He knew suffering. He had been beaten and shipwrecked and even speaks of despairing life itself. So he doesn't say this from some ivory tower when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is our hope. Jesus will restore all things. And when he does, all the weightiness of our suffering, as tragic and terrible as it has been, retrospectively will look like light and momentary affliction. Paul is not trying to dismiss our suffering. He's only trying to frame it in the lens of hope. And while we wait in hope, the message of the gospel is the same. God came to be with us. And Jesus got his hands dirty in our humanity. He let his heart be deeply affected by our suffering. He wept with those who wept. He grieved with those who grieved. He sat in the silence of our powerlessness. He's the God who remakes the world through a cross. You're never alone in your pain. And even if you can't see that, it remains true. As I wrote this sermon this week, I, I knew it's heavier and I knew that it's touching on tender areas, areas for people. So I went for a walk on the seawall to think about what I'm saying. And on my walk, I saw 
uh, this woman advanced in years. And I'd guess she's probably somewhere in her 80s. And she's walking the seawall very slowly with a stroller, you know, one little movement at a time. But she caught my eye because she was wearing a very bold leopard print sweater. And on the sweater were metallic gold letters that said, the best is yet to come. It was such a striking thing to behold. And I don't know if she's a Christian, but I think she can be a symbol of Christian hope. We all limp along through this life with our fragility and our frailty, but we do so knowing that the best is yet to come. And it's a seeming contradiction because from the vantage point of earth, this is not true of an 80-year-old woman. The best is behind her. All that awaits is death. But from the vantage point of the kingdom, the best is yet to come. If not now, then later. If not later, then when Christ's returned and he unites us with him and makes all things new. The best is yet to come because God remains faithful and will fulfill his promises even if our hearts struggle to trust him along the way. So may we be more like Elizabeth. May we hold on to hope even when life is barren. And may we see with our own eyes God fulfill his promise in Christ.